Part four of There is a Tavern in the Town From Here Are Ladies by James Stevens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. There is a tavern in the town. Ten. He wiped his face with a large red pocket handkerchief, pursed his lips, shut one eye, and with the other he critically observed the remnant of his liquor. After a moment of deep consideration he smiled delightfully and said he thought it was all right. The apothecary behind the counter smiled also as one gratified and suggested that there was not much of that at the North Pole, and, after a little discussion on this point, the old gentleman addressed me in the following words. I do not understand what necessity impels people to the discovery of something which, if it had any existence at all, has only an idealistic existence, and which, when it is discovered, cannot be utilized in any possible direction. Utility is the first attribute of all terrestrial bodies. A stone, for instance, is a useful inorganic substance. It can be built into a house, or thrown at a duck, or, when ground into sand, it can be and is sold as sugar by a grocer. It is constantly being utilized in one or other of these directions, and so with all other objects. But the necessity for a north or a south pole has yet to be demonstrated. The statement that the north pole was put there by the castle authorities is one which I do not believe, for I am assured that at every period of the world's history there has been a north and a south pole, which, surrounded as they were by snow-clad countries, icebergs, cold water and whales, were too remote and inhospitable to tempt the average civilian to journey there. The only thing which grows in the polar regions is ice, and this is generally found in almost tropical profusion and rankness, growing sometimes to the height of several hundred feet, none of which wear boots. Polar bears and Eskimos are also found there, but in scattered and inconsiderable quantities. These two races spend most of their time chasing each other in order to keep themselves warm, which they do by degrees which are often registered on a barometer. They also eat each other and get scurvy. Outside of these relaxations their existence is stagnant and unexciting. I sometimes fancy that if I had the misfortune to be born as a polar bear or an Eskimo I would not have been a patriot. I have no esteem for ice in other than easily portable quantities. Some small pieces to pack around fish, a particle to drop into a glass of lager beer. That is all the ice which I can regard patiently or leniently. But a continent composed entirely of ice and polar bears tempts me to believe that providence is subject to aberrations. It is supposed to redound to the credit of a nation when one of its citizens resolves to discover some inaccessible and futile place, and proceeds to do so in the most fantastic manner. The inhabitants of that country who remain at their work and continue to pay their rates are expected to be in a condition of wild enthusiasm and delight at the adventure. My own impression is that the majority of people take no more than a tepid interest in these forlorn adventures and are but imperfectly convinced of the sanity of the adventurers. And this is the more particularly noticeable when the quest is for something so intangible and unmarketable as a North Pole. Why need they go so far afield for their excitement? Every discoverer is a detective. He traces missing places, and 
There are cartloads of Poles in their own countries waiting for explorers. The habit of seeking for a North Pole is one of only comparative antiquity. Its conception is well within the historic era and must therefore be classed as an acquired habit and not one inherent in man. I have not observed that any other animals are addicted to this peculiar expeditionary craze. It is true that many species of bird migrate annually from these shores, and, although their departures are usually chronicled in the newspapers, it must not without further evidence be inferred that these birds have gone to look for the North Pole. They may, as a matter of fact, have left this country to avoid being arrested, for here one is continually being arrested. The evidence in favour of the North Pole theory as regards birds is that nobody knows where they have gone to, and that, as the rest of the earth is round and densely populated, their arrival would be noted somewhere as their departure was. But their arrival not being so noted, and as they must be somewhere, the process of eliminating all possible places leaves nowhere but the North Pole as their objective. Now birds are a very intelligent and strenuous race of people who build nests in trees and have often five eggs at a time, and I believe that they leave these countries because their nests are so full of broken eggshells, and because the winter is settling in, and because they dislike cold weather, and, thus disliking cold weather, it is unlikely that they would fly to the North Pole, where the cold is very intense, and where, moreover, there is little food to be found, saving polar bears and Eskimos, a form of victual for which birds have only the scantiest relish. My own impression is that these birds, when out of sight of land, are enabled by a mechanism with which we are not yet familiar to convert themselves into fishes, or, alternatively, that they know the whereabouts of Tirnanog and go there, or else they do not go anywhere at all, but are simply translated into the fourth dimension of space, and are thus flying, nesting, and mating all around us in a medium which our eyes are too gross to penetrate. From a perusal of the evening papers, I observe that the discoverer of the North Pole is an American citizen with a complicated pedigree, a long beard, and a red shirt, all of which he hoisted at the top of the pole and left there for subsequent identification. I fear this was a thoughtless action on his part, because the Eskimos who live habitually at the North Pole, but have not discovered it, will, while his back is turned, take to wearing his shirt and turn. They are a communistic people, I fancy, and no shirt will survive communism. Also, seeing the fuss which is being made of their pole, they may either sell it or sell pieces of it to tourists as remembrancers. The explorer should have cached his shirt and other memorials at the foot of the pole, built a cairn upon it, and shook cayenne pepper on top of it to keep bears away. But it is useless to advise explorers. The ancient hereupon made a significant gesture to the curate, who misinterpreted it, and brought more than he had required. He was very much perturbed, for, as he explained, he had forgotten to bring his purse with him. He consented, however, to use my purse for his needs, and, after paying his shot, he, in an abstracted and melancholy manner, put the change in his trouser pocket. There was only one shilling in the purse, so I did not like to draw his attention to the mistake. He very genially returned my purse, and said he had conceived a great liking for me. 11. When the old gentleman came in, I noticed at once that he was out of humour. He had a large scar on his chin, and three pieces of newspaper on his cheeks. 
he discharged the contents of my tobacco pouch into a pipe which had a holding capacity of one and a half ounces and then he became more cheerful i dislike extremely said he the impertinent interference with nature which men are nowadays guilty of not content with clamping our feet in leathern boxes our legs in cloth cylinders our trunks in a variety of wrappings of complex inutility and then inserting our heads into monstrous felt pots we even approach ourselves more minutely and scrape the very hair from our faces which nature has sown there for the purposes of ornament and protection with the result that it is difficult for a short-sighted person to distinguish rapidly the sex of the people with whom he comes in contact saving by a minute and tedious examination of their clothing the habit of shaving is one which is entirely confined to man it is the one particular habit that he holds apart from all other animals and indeed it is not an accomplishment upon which he need pride himself for in parting with his beard he has sacrificed the only pleasant-looking portion of his face it could easily be proved that hair and innocence have a subtle relationship no very hairy person is really vicious as witness the caterpillar of whom i have not heard that he ever bit any one while on the other hand the frog who was born bald would doubtless be very savage were it not for the fact that nature has benevolently curtailed his teeth fishes also an uncleanly race and who i fancy are shaved before birth are all monsters of cold-blooded ferocity and they will devour their parents and even their own offspring with equal and indiscriminate enjoyment the habit of shaving is not of a very ancient origin when humanity lived a quiet rural and unambitious life men did not shave their hair was their glory and if they had occasion to swear which must have been infrequent their hardiest and readiest oath was by the beard of my father showing clearly that this texture was held in veneration in early times and was probably accorded divine honours upon suitable occasions with the advent of war came the habit of shaving a beard offered too handy a grip to a foeman who had gotten to close quarters therefore warriors who had no true hardihood of soul preferred cutting off their beards to the honourable labour of defending their chins many ancient races effected a compromise in order to retain a fitting military appearance for a barefaced warrior has but little of terror in his aspect the ancient egyptians for example who had cut off or could not cultivate or had been forcibly deprived of their beards were wont to go into battle clad in heavy false whiskers which when an enemy seized hold of them came off instantly in his hand and the ancient egyptian was enabled to dispatch him while in a trance of stupefaction and horror clean-shaven men became by this cowardly stratagem very much prized as fighting men and thus the foundation of the shaving habit was laid it is a remarkable fact that save for an inconsiderable number who live in circuses women have no beards i am unable at present to trace the reason for this singular omission but the advantages of beards for women are too patent for explanation they would improve her personal appearance and their advantages as air purifiers or respirators i need not dwell upon i am certain that a persistent application of goose grease and electricity to the chin of a woman would at last enable her to become as bearded and virtuous as her husband besides entitling her to the political franchise they are perverse creatures however 
and it is possible that this deprivation is responsible for many of their ill-humours and crankinesses. Their scarcity of beard is the more remarkable when we observe that the female cat is as magnificently whiskered as her male companion. The wisdom of cats is proverbial, and I never heard of a cat who had hired another cat to bite out, tear off, scrape, or otherwise demolish his or her whiskers. When I do hear of such occurrence, I shall be prepared to reconsider my position on this subject. In some ways, a clean-shaven face is desirable. A pig's cheek should not have whiskers. Neither should oysters, nor the face of a clock. But a man's face should never be seen out of doors without a decent and honourable covering. Having said this, the old gentleman, with remarkable presence of mind, drank my whisky, and then apologised with dignified and touching humility. As we departed, the youth behind the counter corrugated his features in a remarkable manner, and said, Bow-wow, by way of valediction. 12. He helped himself absently to two water-biscuits and a piece of cheese, and sank to a profound reverie. The eating of this light refreshment was probably a manifestation of subconscious thought, for, when he had finished, he spoke to me as follows. There are a great many things which I dislike immensely, but the necessity for which I must perforce acquiesce in. These are water, easterly winds, and actresses, but there are other habits cultivated by humanity for which I can find no apology and some of these have grown to so great an extent that they now bulk as evils of terrific magnitude. Foremost among these reprehensible customs I will mention that of eating. Of all the evils under which civilization staggers helplessly, the most ponderous and merciless is hunger, and it is the evil which will ultimately decimate all existing forms of life. All forms of organic life have now for millions of years been slaves to this filthy habit of eating, and have superimposed upon their original singleness of form a variety of weighty and unattractive organs to keep pace with the satisfaction of this oppressive appetite, until, today, the entire organic world stands upon the imminent brink of destruction, if food should be withheld from it for one entire week. Every living being should be self-supporting and self-sufficient. It should be inherent in the economy of a man to produce for himself not alone food, but also shelter and raiment from his own internal resources. A man should be able to build a house or evolve a loaf of bread out of his own body with ease and assurance. Look for a moment at spiders. Every spider carries within himself the materials for his own home. His stomach, instead of being, as is vulgarly supposed, a cemetery for smaller organisms, is in reality his brickfield and rope-walk, and out of this minute sack he will produce endless miles of cordage and web, which he weaves into the most beautiful and mathematical harmonies. This is a self-contained utility which might be imitated by men with advantage, and that which is done with ease by a spider can scarcely offer insuperable difficulty to the chief of the vertebrates. Of course, each man's production will be more or less guided and limited by his capacity. Thus, fat men will spin forth cathedrals, opera houses, and railway stations. Thin men will devote themselves to obelisks, church spires, factory chimneys, and artistic bric-a-brac. 
short men will willingly produce artisans' dwellings, busts of famous men, and, perhaps now and then, pyramids or villa residences. Constant work of this description will not alone render us independent of landlords, but, by atrophy of the digestive organs, will inaugurate a brighter era for long-suffering, food-fed humanity. Suppose it is advanced that man cannot keep up his strength and usefulness without some kind of exterior nourishment. I will then proceed to demonstrate how this can be most easily accomplished. Our first cousins, the trees and bushes, do not sit down at stated hours to a heterogeneous mess of steak, tea and onions. They stand firm in the ground, unhurried by the sound of the dinner bell, and careless of the state of the American market. As the spider is sufficient in itself in house-building, so are the trees, the grass, and all inorganic life, self-supporting as far as food is concerned. The reason is that trees, grass, and flowers are bedded in the earth, the source of all nourishment. Let this fact be but properly understood, and the last and greatest bar to human progress will be removed, and the millenniums which so furiously chase us will have a chance of catching us up. If, once a week, men would bury themselves to the chin in good fertile clay, and allow the nurture of the earth to permeate their bodies, there would be an end to this gross and unfortunate digestive activity. I have myself experimented in this direction with the most encouraging results. A rich, loamy soil is very good. It is rather cold at the bottom, but invigorating. Light, sandy clay would suit sedentary persons such as parsons, artists, judges. In poor ground some superphosphates, or a light compost, could be strewn by each person around himself. Families would take turns in pruning each other, and so forth, but all these incidental matters would rapidly adjust themselves. After a time we might succeed in propagating ourselves by seeds or slips, and this would lead to a radical readjustment of our sex relations and put an end to many of the problems wherewith we are eternally badgered and perplexed. In some ways I will admit that food is valuable. As a means of killing a rich uncle by gout, or of attaining wealth by judicious adulteration, it can be recommended, and, looked at in the light of a gentle morning exercise to be taken immediately after rising, it is useful. But, as a method of obtaining nourishment, it is obsolete, and disgustingly vulgar. At this point the gentleman-in-waiting snorted in a most unbecoming manner, and dived under the counter, from beneath which he alternately mewed like a cat, and crowed like a cock. It was a clear attack of hysteria. While the poor man was recovering from his seizure, the old gentleman absent-mindedly departed, without paying his shot. End of Part 4 and the Conclusion of there is a tavern in the town by James Stevens.